Mosaic, how are we doing this morning? It is good to see you. If, you are, uh, if you're a guest with us and we haven't met, uh, my name's Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here, and, and really pumped that you're here with us. And you're jumping in. Uh, we're a few weeks into a series uh, in the Psalms. We're spending a couple months journeying in the Psalms, um, which is something the church has done for hundreds of years. And, and one of the things that I love about the Psalms um, is just how incredibly raw they are when it comes to the human experience. Um, there's no sugarcoating. There's not, no trying to gloss over uh, how tough uh, the spiritual journey is and life is. And so they, it really, man, it really gets to the heart of the human experience. And we are engaging that uh, in all of its rawness. And so this morning we're talking uh, specifically as, uh, about doubt. And uh, as we do, I want to begin by sharing about a, a woman named Agnes. Agnes Boyajou, uh, who uh, lived last century, died in 1997. And she was, when she died, one of the most influential uh, people on the face of the planet. She actually came from a nation that isn't particularly influential or powerful, but she was uh, incredibly influential. And she was a very passionate follower of Jesus. Um, and she was so, so influential that she was actually invited uh, by the Clinton administration to come and speak. Uh, despite the fact that they knew that she was very anti-abortion. Um, and she came, and true to form, she was very harshly critical about abortion. And President Clinton, uh, when he was asked to respond to her criticism, he said just this. He said, who can argue with a life so well lived? All right, this is a, a woman of serious influence. But one of the things that, that many people did not know about Anya's during her lifetime um, is that she struggled a lot with doubt. And after she died, some of her writings were published, and she wrote things like this. She wrote, the more I want God, the less I am wanted. Uh, She wrote things like this, such deep longing for God, and I'm repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. The saving of souls holds no attraction. Heaven means nothing to me. Pray for me, please, that I keep smiling at him in spite of of everything. Right? And, and ordinarily, her words wouldn't have created such a storm because for many of us, right, we've, we've been there. We know this thing, but because of who she was, it, it really did. Um, and, and you know her. Her, her. her name, her better known name is Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa struggled not only with depression, but long periods of, of darkness and doubt, and she really struggled with her faith. And, and, and people have really wrestled with that since. Her, her very private words have been very publicly scrutinized. And I think it, it, it's because her words raise some very important questions for us as it relates to doubt. Right? It, it, is doubt wrong? Right? Do, should, we be, should we have to and need to repent of our doubts? Right? How do we understand doubt? How do we respond to it? And, and in my personal experience when it comes to doubt, doubt is, is kind of a dirty little secret in the church. Uh, we don't like it. We don't really know what to do with it. In fact, this week I came across a, a sermon title perhaps one of the worst sermon titles I've ever heard. And the sermon title was this. It was, Doubt, the Sin God Hates Most. You know, it's like, and I was like, whoa, that is awful for one, you know. But it's a great example of, one, just our misunderstanding of what doubt is. Um, and, and two, just how uncomfortable we really are uh, with doubt. Right? In the church, we tend to, to stifle it and push it away and avoid it and even tell people to stu- stuff it and at times even prevent or pretend like, like doubt doesn't even, uh, doesn't even exist. So this morning on the front end, I want to get really honest. And I know this is church. It's no place for that. Um, but we'll try. But I want to be really honest. And I, and I would say this as it pertains to doubt. 
right, you show me a person of faith who never struggles with doubt, and I will show you an imposter. Right? It is something, it is a universal experience. If you haven't been there, you will be. Right? We all inevitably at times struggle with doubt. I know I do. And that didn't end when I became a pastor. Right? There's still moments, days, seasons when I struggle with doubt about God, his character, his goodness, his existence. Right? Last night, Megan and I were sitting around our table. The kids were in bed. And a picture popped up in her newsfeed of a friend of ours who had a baby several weeks ago, a beautiful baby boy who was born, and he was still born. It was incredibly, we're looking at this picture of her holding her baby boy, and he is beautiful and perfect in every way, but he's not breathing. You know, and I see something like that, and just so you know, you know, I don't know if pastors should admit this stuff, but it's just me. You know, I, I see something like that, it's like, explain that one to me. You tell me how that brings you glory. You, you ex- in fact, why don't you explain to that couple how you are somehow going to use this for good in their life? You know, that's where my heart goes. You know, every, every time I turn on the news and I see another story of a young girl who was raped and murdered. You know, or some guy busts into an elementary school and opens up fire on kids. You know, or a dictator who's murdering tens of thousands of his own people simply because of their bloodline. I doubt and I wonder why God is not more involved. You know, or every time I see a pastor, another pastor, who uses and abuses his position, you know, for selfish gain, and he uses and abuses people, and he loses his ministry, and sometimes also his family. You know, and I, I have moments where I'm like, is this just all a sham? Because am I going to have any role models left by the time I'm done? You know, I, I, I go through seasons. And some of you know some of those seasons for me have included uh, depression and, and anxiety. It's just a part of my story and journey. And sometimes when I'm in the fog and in the darkness and God seems distant and prayer seems just in vain, and I wonder, is God real? Is this legit? And I struggle with doubt, all right? And so I share that because as we talk about doubt, for me, this isn't a disconnected idea. Um, I've been there. Right? And, and, and I know when it comes to doubt, for some of us, it's just it's moments. For others of us, it's maybe a day. For others of us, it's, it's entire, entire seasons. But what I can't say is get up here and say, hey, here's four steps to ensure that you never struggle with doubt. Because that does not exist. Right? And anybody who tells you otherwise is, is selling something. Right? Inevitably, we will all find ourselves there. So it's so, so, so important that we talk about it. That we understand it. And we talk about and, and really understand how to respond to it when it inevitably comes. Right? So this, this morning what I want to do is I want to look at a psalm. I want to look at Psalm 73. And the psalmist is coming out of a, a very deep uh, season of some very serious doubts about God's character and his existence. And this is what we read uh, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, <clears throat> to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity, and the evil conceits of their minds know no limits. And they scoff, and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and take their tongues, uh, take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and they drink up water in abundance and they say, 
How would God know? How does the Most High know anything? And this is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They go on amassing wealth. He says that surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands of innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Skipping to verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And yet, now I realize I am always with you. And you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish, and you will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Right, this is one of the reasons I love the Psalms. I mean, sometimes you read stuff in the Psalms, it's like, that's in the Bible? Right, that's not supposed to be in there. But it's very, very, it's very raw. And the psalmist talks about the condition. I love the way he describes doubt. Right? And the way he describes doubt is he says, I nearly lost my foothold. Right? And I love that language because you don't talk about footholds in Lincoln, Nebraska. You don't talk about footholds on the prairie, you know, when you're just leisurely walking on, on you know, flat ground, you know. You, you talk about it when you're in the mountains. You know, you go eight, nine, ten hours west of here into the Rockies, off the beaten path. And all of a sudden, foothold becomes a part of your language. Right? You use the word foothold when you're fighting against gravity, right? when you're climbing. Right? So this is the picture. It's a compelling picture. It's this picture of a person who is, is up on the mountain. Right? They're climbing. They're fighting against gravity. And things are shaky and they're slippery. Uh, it's almost like the psalmist is, is teetering on the precipice, disoriented and trying, uh, trying not to fall. And uh, I love the way, so Tim Keller is uh, one of my sources again this morning, um, and he says this, and I love the way that he defines doubt. He says this, doubt is a spiritual form of dizziness or vertigo that happens when your eye gives your brain information that your heart can't process spiritually. Right? When you see something and, and your mind is trying to process something that your heart simply in this moment just can't accept. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And so he uses the illustration of a treadmill. So do we have any, like, runners in the house? Runners, runners, runners? A few of us? All right. We have a lot of game. Do we have gamers? Are we a gaming church? Okay. Uh, but he uses the, the illustration of a treadmill, right? And so I don't, I'm not a runner either. But when I do run on the treadmill, which is, you know, once, never, um, I'm fine as long as I'm looking forward. Right? Or if I'm looking at my feet, I'm fine. Right? But the moment I close my eyes, right, I get disoriented very quickly. You know, or even if I look up at the ceiling, right, I'm running, and, and I think I'm in the center of the treadmill, but eventually, I mean, inevitably, I start to drift. You know, I start to drift, and I start to lose my footing, and, and my, my foot gets off the treadmill, and, and I start to stumble, and I start to fall. And this is, this is the picture that he gives us, that it's, it's like a spiritual form of that. Right? Doubt is a, a spiritual form of vertigo where your eyes are seeing something that your heart it just cannot accept. Right? So the psalmist says this. He says, I thought God was good until I saw this going on over here. And now I'm not so sure. Right? Now I'm experiencing doubt and feeling as though I'm going to fall. Right? And so I want to just make a, qu- a couple really quick observations already. Right? First of all, 
We already said it, but it bears repeating, and that is, first of all, doubt can happen to anybody. It can happen to anybody, right? We're reading these words from Asaph. He's one of the, one of the authors of the Psalms, right? And he's one of the few through which God chose to write the Bible, all right? And I don't know about you, but writing pieces of the Bible, it's not on my bucket list, you know? I don't know about you, but chances are very good. Asaph is, is very further along spiritually than you or I ever will be. He's an author of Scripture, and here he is saying, like, I'm, I'm about to be done with this. I can't accept what I'm seeing. All right, so doubt can happen to anybody. Secondly, uh, I would say this. Doubt can be a tremendously positive force, right? It really can. Like, on the surface level, first of all, right, just ask, how did we get this psalm? How do we get Psalm 73? Right? It's through doubt, right? It was human struggle and doubt in the goodness of God that gave us this passage, Right, or think about it another way. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, uh, who's the most famous doubter in the Bible, arguably? Thomas, right. Doubting Thomas, right? He's kind of got a moniker that's not a term of endearment, right? Poor guy has one bad day and it defines his life in sacred literature forever. Um, if you can imagine that, you know, he'd be lying Lindsay or Road Rage Ryan forever in the Bible. But anyway, you know, Thomas, if you know the story, Thomas is, though, he's a skeptic. And he's a pretty hard-nosed doubter. And on the other side of the resurrection, right, Jesus purportedly is, is resurrected and people are having, understandably, a hard time accepting this fact, right? But in the disciples, some of them have already seen Jesus. So they go and Thomas is a part of this crew that wasn't there. They're saying, Thomas, we saw him, man. We touched him. We, he ate a fish, you know, like he's alive. And Thomas's response is he says, I'm not buying it. In fact, he says, even seeing him will not be enough. I want to see the holes in his hands and I want to put my finger... In his side where the spear went in. Then I'll believe. Right? And the amazing thing is, is he does run into Jesus. And his doubt leads him to Jesus. And Jesus shows himself to Peter, and, and, or I'm sorry, to Thomas. And Thomas's words are amazing. Listen, on the other side of his doubts, listen to what Thomas says. He says, my Lord and my God. Right? And, and almost every commentator I've read affirms that this is the most direct, loftiest, uh, and highest confession of faith in all of the Gospels. And who does it come from? The doubter. Right? The skeptic. Right? All the while through, the disciples are they're trying to understand Jesus, and they're trying to come to grips with these enormous claims he's making about himself, and they can't quite get there. But who is the first confessor of faith in all his fullness? It's Thomas, the skeptic. Thomas the doubter. And, and here's the thing. I don't think that's a coincidence. All right, this week I was, I was listening to a message and they referenced uh, Francis Bacon. And I, didn't, I had, had no idea who that was. I had to go look him up. And he lived in the 1500s, 1600s. I was very disappointed to learn he was not the one that discovered Bacon. But he was a pretty famous scientist and educator. And, and he wrote a book called uh, The Advancement of Learning. And in it he writes something very interesting. And this is what he writes. So good. He said this, he said, if you begin with certainties, you will end in doubts. But if you're content to begin with great doubts, you will end in certainty. Right? So huge. And we certainly see this in in Thomas. Right? Thomas the doubter became Thomas the evangelist. Thomas the, the ultimate worshiper. Right? It changed it changed his world. And I would say this, I think. Because this is true, and I believe it's true, I see it to be true, this is why I think one of the most dangerous things we can do as Christian parents is raise our kids in a, in a religious environment where they are not allowed to ask questions or push back. 
right? A culture where it's just like, hey, just accept it. You just have to have faith. Fall in the line. Don't say anything. Doubt is not appropriate here, right? I think it's one of the most damaging things that we, that we can do to them because what inevitably happens and what I've seen so many times, right, is these kids eventually grow up and they don't really know why they believe what they believe, right? Even if what they believe is 100% true, they have not asked hard questions about a lot of it. And so they get to college, Right? And they have one or two professors that they love who are not believers who really press them and ask very hard, very good, very legitimate questions about wh- why they believe what they believe. Or they have an atheist friend or two or ten, and they're just asking good questions. And their worldview, that ki- poor kid's worldview, is this big. And those questions don't fit in that universe. And it just blows up their faith in a really destructive way. They don't know how to handle it. Or they, they don't even have a category for it. And starting with certainty, unthought through certainty paves this way for eventual doubt. But I believe, I believe Bacon is right. You start with doubts in all of their rawness, in all the honesty. Take on the hard questions, process it through, and it paves the way for incredible certainty and steadfast faith. In fact, I would say this is one of the reasons some of the most influential Christian thinkers that, we, that we've, uh, the world has ever had started out as atheists. Right? And C.S. Lewis is, a, is one great example of that. Right? He didn't want to believe, and he'll be the first to tell you that. He writes about that. Right? But he kept asking questions and kept asking questions, and he came to lead thousands. We've had people in our church who are atheists who came to Christ because they read C.S. Lewis. Right? It's, pretty, it's pretty extraordinary. You know, the thing is, and, and I think just think this is just so big for us to just say out loud and understand, is we can't be afraid of questions. Like, you, if Christianity is true, there are no questions that are off limits. Right? Your faith can stand up to extreme scrutiny, but not if you go on acting like there's nothing to be scrutinized. Not if you pretend like there are no good questions and you just like, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Right? It sets you up to eventually land, to eventually land in doubt. Right? We do that to our kids and eventually, like the psalmist, they're going to find themselves on the mountain right? and, and struggling with their footing and have very little to anchor them in. Right, but I, th- I think we let doubts exist in the context of community, which is the best place to process doubt. Right? And you let that to drive you to ask hard questions about why you believe what you believe, right? about the reliability of Scripture, about the historicity of Jesus, right? about the character and nature of God, right? about the essence of the gospel and whether it's evident in, in the Bible, in creation, in your own heart and soul. And you pray through those, right? and it can lead you to have a faith that can withstand the most uh, violent of doubtful storms. And this is what we, I, I've seen over and over and again. And the psalmist models it for us really well. Right? And the model, uh, he also talks to, uh, the psalmist speaks to the nature of doubt. And he does it in a way that is way more honest than a lot of us often are. Right? And he says he's looking around and he's seeing all these people who really, they're not religious people. They could care less what God, if God exists, or what God might want from their life. Right? They're just kind of going around, eating, drinking, being merry, and they're experiencing blessing. Right? They're, they're amassing wealth. They're having a lot of fun doing it. You know, uh, they're experiencing all the pleasures of life. And, and meanwhile, right, and those are people who could care less about God. Meanwhile, he's trying to be faithful, and he has nothing to show for it. And, and now, now he's suffering. Right? Now he's, he's experiencing injustice. And he, all, he always knew injustice exists, but the first time it's knocking on his front door. Right, for the first time, it's an experience in his life. And that's what doubt, real doubt, often is. 
Right? Doubt is not just a rational thing. And sometimes we like to pretend it is. You know, when it comes to faith, faith is not, it's not opposed to reason. That's not where doubt comes from. It's not that faith doesn't make sense. And it's not that you can't be a logical, rational, naturally skeptical person and accept the gospel and believe in God. Right? You can. And many do. Right? But the problem is, right, is that our experience, what we experience, it challenges what we believe or what we know to be true. And the two don't compute. Right? So C.S. Lewis uh, tells a story to illustrate this point, and Keller tells a, kind of a more updated version and, and to illustrate that faith, what faith is not, is holding on to beliefs in spite of evidence. That's not what faith is. Right? Faith is holding on to what you know to be true in spite of how they appear. Right? And so, and so imagine this. This is the story he tells us. So imagine that, that you and these two people met, two Christians, uh, singles. They met on, you know, ChristianMingleTingle.com, you know, and they arranged to date, you know, like she's looking at his profile and he's very witty and he's good looking and handsome and he has quite the resume. And it just seems like a winner, you know, so they set up this date. But before they go on the date, she has a conversation with 20 of her closest friends. And every single one of her friends says, don't do it. Don't do it. We know this guy. We did this too. And you need to know he's the kind of guy that he's in it for the hunt. He will break your heart. He will woo you. He will romance you. You will fall hard for him. But the moment he knows you love him, he will walk. And he will hurt you. Right? And you have no reason to disbelieve them. They've never lied to you before. Uh, they're just good, decent people. And so you believe them. Right? You're just like, all evidence points to this is true. But you've already made the date. So you're like, all right, I'll go on the date. But that'll be it. And it'll be a casual thing. So you go on the date. But halfway through the date, you start to doubt. You start to doubt because he's handsome and witty and funny and he seems genuine. And maybe just maybe, you know, he just hasn't met the right one and maybe you're her, you know. And what's happened in that moment? Have you gotten a lot of new information? No. Like, is there a logical fallacy with what your friends have told you? No. Right? It's because you are seeing something with your eyes that your heart can't or doesn't want to believe. Right, I love the way that Keller puts it. He says this. Uh, he says, what's happening is the claims of your friends are on audio, but the claims of the hunk are on video. <laughs> so in other words, he says, uh, it's not a, a fair fight. Right? And this is oftentimes how doubts come. Right? It's not that you deconstructs your belief system, and it's not that there's a logical fallacy. It's that you experience something that throws you off, and it hits home. Right? So you might look around at the suffering and injustice that exists in the world and all the evil and you might say, look, I know suffering does exist. There's great injustice and evil that does exist. But God is so much bigger than we are. He's so much wiser than we are. There's probably a purpose that we can't see. Right? But then injustice comes knocking on your door. Suffering comes to you. Right? And then you get the phone call saying, I'm sorry, it's cancer. Right? Or I'm sorry, I just don't love you anymore. You know, or, or your dream dies. Or you lose the job. And then, all of a sudden, it becomes very, very hard. Then, all of a sudden, you start questioning things. Right? Then, doubts. Right? Your mind, your, your eyes are seeing something. You're experiencing something that your heart it doesn't compute with what you believed to be true. Right? And so, doubts, they do include thoughts, but they're not just thoughts. Right? It's never just, just a rational conclusion. 
right? Because we are integrated people. If you were here week one, we talked about all the things that make us up. And we don't just, we're not just thinking people. We are feeling people, right? You have a will. You have a soul. You do have a mind. But you also have a body. And you have relationships and experiences. And you can't just compartmentalize your brain. That's not where doubts just come from. They're always, they're always interconnected to personal experience, right? And so, like, you can, and you can see this. You can see this in the story of this woman on this date. What she needs to do in that moment is have faith. What she needs to do in that moment is have faith in what her friends have told her, or to have faith in what she already knows to be true, even if her heart doesn't want to believe it. All right, so, so here's, what I, here's what I want to do in, in just our last few minutes together. I want, to, I want to just address the question, all right, so what do I do? Right? When I experience doubt, when I'm not sure I buy this whole God thing or that Jesus is him, or I'm struggling, what do I do? How do I respond? So if you're taking notes, number one, I'd say this. I'd say, got to get honest. You got to get honest. I know, I know, I know. That seems very simplistic. But in Christianity, this is not always a given. Right? Depending on your church background, your past experiences, your muscle memory, what you might immediately want to do because of your past church experiences is to stuff them, deny them, pretend they don't exist. Um, but it's so important that you get honest and that you actually be honest about your doubts and do what the psalmist does, and that is bring those doubts uh, to God. See, the, one of the amazing things about the psalms is the psalms give us, as it relates to feelings, right, a, a gospel third way of dealing with our feelings, right? And so the, the church way, the religious way, oftentimes the feelings is we're very uncomfortable with them. We don't like them. In fact, some of us were taught, don't believe your feelings, deny your feelings. Your feelings are generally almost always wrong. We just, we do, we're not comfortable with feelings, right? And so that's like the church approach, right? But the secular approach oftentimes is like the polar opposite pendulum swing, where it's like, believe your feelings, right? Give your feelings absolute sovereignty. If you want to know what's really true, what you really think, who you really are, follow your heart, Right? pay attention to your feelings. But the, God, the, the Psalms give us like a gospel third way, right? And, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't ignore the feelings, right? It engages the human experience and doubt and all the feelings and all its, its raw honesty. And it also doesn't give extreme sovereignty to our feelings. But instead, right, the psalmists pray their feelings. They get very, very honest. And as I, as I already said, when you do, doubt can become a tremendously positive force. Uh, and we see it in guys like Thomas and guys like C.S. Lewis. There, there's a great, uh, great little piece in, in Mark chapter 9 uh, where a guy comes to Jesus and his son is demon-possessed. And he, he's begging Jesus to cure his son. And if you remember, Jesus says, you know, all things are possible, you know, with those who believe. And he says that his words are so good. The, the father says this. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Right? When you're in a place where you're doubting, right, that becomes the rally cry. Right? You can almost see, you can feel like there's always belief and doubt present at all times. Right? And he's saying, I do believe, I want to believe, but help me with my, overcome my unbelief. Help me with my doubts. So get honest. Number two, I'd say this. Uh, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. What do I mean by that? I will say this, and I want to speak specifically to those who are here or listening in uh, that are not believers. You're skeptic you don't believe in God, or you don't believe in Christianity. And I would say this. As a matter of intellectual integrity, right, you cannot just, just uh, uh, doubt one thing and mindlessly accept something else. Right? And, and so you can't just 
just quickly doubt and discard the idea of God or Jesus being him, and then at the same time, mindlessly accept your own proclivities and assumptions and opinions. You can't, right? Look, 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 and I'm going to come back to that. Look at what the psalmist does, right? The psalmist is far more honest than most of us often are because he talks about his doubt. He addresses his doubt, but not only does he talk about his doubt, he presses deeper and asks, why am I experiencing this doubt? Right, what is in here that's, that's maybe not honest or not right? And he says this in verse 3. He says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right, and he talks about all this injustice in the world. Right, and he's like, you know, the wicked prosper, good people suffer. How can I believe in a good God? And he talks about that, but then he gets even more honest. He presses deeper, and he begins to mine out what's really going on in his heart. And he admits that, you know what, all that injustice probably wouldn't have bothered him very much if it hadn't come knocking on his front door, if he hadn't personally began <clears throat> struggling. And the point, my point is this. When it comes to doubt, there are always honest elements and dishonest elements in every doubt, right? And part of the hard work of faith is actually mining out the two and mining out the truth uh, from the lies, right? There's always stuff in there that's not, it's definitely not objective, it's often connected to personal experience, and some of it just isn't entirely honest. Right? And so in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells a story, and the, and the picture is this, that there are people from heaven and people from hell that end up interacting. And some of the people from hell are given the ability to travel to the outskirts of heaven and have a conversation with their friends who are in there. And there's these two guys that are kind of the academic skeptical types, one of them in heaven, one in hell, and they begin to talk, right? And the guy who's, who's been in hell and cut off from God is really angry, you know? And he makes the comment. He says, well, these are just my honest thoughts and opinions. And his friend begins to push back and says, they're not, they were never entirely honest thoughts and opinions. And he says this. Uh, he says, you know, when we were in college, we found ourselves in contact with certain currents of ideas and we plunged into them because they seemed modern and successful, Right? At college, we just started automatically writing the kinds of essays that got good marks and saying the kinds of things that won applause. Right? But we were playing with loaded dice, though. We didn't want the faith to be true. Right? We, we were afraid of crude salvationism. We were afraid of a breach with the spirit of the age. And we were most afraid of the ridicule of our smart, intelligent friends. Right? Now, what is he doing? Is he saying that all doubt is dishonest? No. But what he is illustrating is there's always things that need to be mined out. There's always elements of honesty and dishonesty that are not, I mean, here's the thing about doubt. Doubt often masquerades as being far more uh, intellectual than it actually is, right? And that's not to say there are not good, hard questions. That exists, and there's legitimate doubts. But even in the most legitimate doubts, even in the midst of some of the worst suffering, there are lies to be mined out. There's selfishness. Right, so in this phase of my life, one of the things that at times causes me to doubt and has ever since we planted Mosaic uh, is disappointment with people, and specifically Christians not acting very Christian. You know, and it's like you pour in and you love people, and then they hurt other people or they hurt you, and they just make, they've been sitting in church, some of them, for 25 years, and then they behave in a way that is so hurtful and unloving and unchristlike. And in those moments, I have thoughts. I'm just like, is this just all a sham? Is this a joke? 
You know, like, are we, uh, is, is there any value to this that somebody can come and be a part of a faith community for this many years and behave like that and hurt people like that? Uh, you know, and, and in that moment, there might be some legitimacy to those questions. But there's more going on in my heart, if I'm really honest. Because there's another part of me that's, that's angry and that's hurt. There's part of me that, that would love to just be relieved of the responsibility of pastoral ministry. You know, there's a part of me that would love to no longer have to, you know, just be relieved of the responsibility of continuing to love people and pray for people and forgive people, even as they act very poorly. And I might have very legitimate doubts about who God is, but there's always more going on, right? And so you've got to actually do the hard work of distilling the truth from the lies and not just doubt God and not just doubt faith, but you've got to doubt your doubts as well. Number three, I promise I'm getting there. I'm almost done. Number three, all right, actively worship. Actively worship. And if you're not a believer, I dare you on this one. And you need to do it. Actively worship. In verse 16, here's what the psalmist says. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. Right? In the throes of doubt, he enters the sanctuary. And what would he be doing there? He'd be praying. He'd be singing. He'd be, he'd be seeing the, sac- excuse me, the sacrifice, right? He would be actively engaging in worship. And he says, it's only then, right, that my doubts actually began to subside and my faith actually began to grow, right? And just so you know, that's how it works. That's how it works. You don't, because we are integrated people, right, because you don't just get into doubt through thinking, you can't just get out of doubt through thinking, right? You don't just get into doubt by reading Stephen Hawking, and you don't just get out of doubt by reading Ravi Zacharias, right? There's experiences, right? And, and, and if, you're a, if you're a cynic, if you're an unbeliever, here's the thing, and here's why it's not a fair fight, right? Every day, engaging all of your senses is a message, right? And the message is, right, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, right? The only way in an intellectual, integrity kind of a way, the only way to discover what is really true, right, is to actually engage in things that involves all of your senses and not just your, your, um, your mind, right? And so here's what my challenge would be, really, really practical on this one, right? And again, it's a dare. It really is. Right? I dare you to enter in, to actually connect yourself in a faith community, right? To actually sing songs of worship to God, even if you don't believe yet, right? To, to, to actually pray, right? And, and to pray, even if your prayer is, Lord God, I don't believe in you. <laughs> I think I'm talking to myself right now. Um, I'm not convinced. And if you are there, I'm not convinced you're good. But I will say this. If, if you are real, I ask that you would show me. I ask that you would show yourself to me, that you would convince me. I dare you. Right? If you're right and I'm wrong, you've got nothing to lose. Right? And that's a challenge that we put out oftentimes. But I will say this. I will say this, and this is number four. Expect to be unexpected. Expect the unexpected. Expect to be surprised. Right? This is a challenge that we've put out a number of times. Every year we do a series on prayer and fasting. And we take a season as a church to fast and pray together. And every year I just put out the challenge. It's like if you are not convinced that, that God is real or that Jesus is him, just journey with us. Just journey with us. What do you have to lose, right? It's like best case scenario, nothing happens. It only affirms your unbelief that you're right and I'm wrong. 
But worst case scenario, you discover that God is real and he ruins your life, right? In the best of ways. And he shows himself to you, right? And I will say this, whenever we do this, there are people who come to faith. And it's not because of great preaching and it's not because of any arguments. It's simply because God is really, really good. And so you need to expect to be surprised. And, and, and I'll say this, God, God is real. But you've got to expect the unexpected. Right? And, I, and I love this. You know, we've been talking about C.S. Lewis because he's such a great example. But C.S. Lewis talks uh, in, in his biography about his experience. And he didn't want to believe in God. And in fact, he was a pretty steadfast atheist. And then he started reading G.K. Chesterton. And he became friends with J.R. Tolkien. And from then on, he was pretty much screwed. But he talks about his conversion, and this is what he writes. This is so, so good. This is in uh, Surprised by Joy that he writes this. He says, You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> I love that. Right? And with this, I'll say this. And this may not be true of you, but for some of us, it may be. I think C.S. Lewis is really honest about a fear that a lot of doubters and skeptics have. And that fear, if we were really honest, is... We're, we're afraid to meet God. We're afraid that he might exist. You know, we're, we're afraid that he won't, he's not a good God. Right? He's a, we're afraid of judgment and condemnation and rejection. We're afraid of what, if God does exist and Jesus is him, what that might actually mean for our lives, the implications. We're afraid. Right? And, and what I just would end with in saying to you this morning is this. Uh, you have nothing to be afraid of, right? Discovering God, it will, in a sense, ruin your life, but it will ruin it in the best of ways. And what you will find, and and this is why I challenge you to expect the unexpected, what you will find, as the psalmist did, the psalmist actually wrote this. I'll just let him speak for himself. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, And yet, meaning nevertheless, I realized that I'm always with you and you hold me by my right hand. Right? If you do this, if you you get honest and you doubt your doubts and you actively worship and you expect the unexpected, don't be surprised if at some point you look up and see and realize for the first time that God has always been with you and he's been holding your hand through all of your sin and rebellion and doubt. And what I can say is what you will find in his eyes are not judgment and condemnation, but love and embrace as he's been waiting for you just to finally look up. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord God, I know that in a room this big, uh, that we enter this room from a lot of different places spiritually. Uh, Some of us have been following you for some time. Some of us are not convinced that you're any more than a fairy tale. Some of us are struggling with doubt right now intellectually. Others of us are struggling with doubt because we're walking through great suffering right now, or we have in the past. 
And Lord God, for all of us, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us wherever we are on that spectrum, wherever we are currently on the journey. And Lord God, I, I ask that you would continue to shape us, not just as individuals, but as a community, and that you would make Mosaic continually into a place where doubters and skeptics and unbelievers are welcome, just as you welcomed them when you walked the earth. That this is a place where we do not try to just tell people they need to fall in line and not ask questions and just believe, but a place where we can honestly and lovingly dialogue through some of the hard questions that are there so that we can find you together on the other side. So Lord God, we come before you now in worship from a lot of different places and we pray these things as we prepare to actively worship together in your name. Amen.